This series is called Jesus Said, and I want to talk to you today about something Jesus said about children. Children, and I want to, you know, make this zero to age 18 or so. You know, King Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs, and in the book of Proverbs, he wrote many axioms for life, bits of wisdom that will help us navigate life well. It's filled with all kinds of nuggets that can give you insight on how to live life well. There's an old TV show a while back, say, children say the darndest thing. It's a saying called, out of the mouth of babes come these pearls of wisdom sometimes. I have a few pearls from some children. I want to bring you today, Patrick, age 10. Here's a proverb of his, never trust a dog to watch your food. (laughs) Hannah, age 9. When your dad is mad and asks you, do I look stupid? Don't answer him. (laughs) Talia, age 11. When your mom is mad at your dad, it's not the time to let her brush your hair. (laughs) Lauren, age 9. Felt tip markers are not good to use as lipstick. Alicia, age 13. When you get a bad grade in school, show it to your mom when she's on the phone. (laughs) Don't pick on your sister when she's holding a baseball bat. Joel, age 10, here's my favorite. Eileen, age 8, never try to baptize a cat. Colossians, the book of Colossians tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the exact replica of God. book of John tells us in the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh in its dwelling and made its dwelling among us. Jesus said, the Father and I are one. Which means when Jesus speaks to us, it's God speaking to us. Are we listening? There's an old commercial that went around when I was younger. And this commercial, I think he was an investment banker. His name was E.F. Hutton told about how good E.F. Hutton was. And then at the end of the commercial, it would, announcer would come on and says, when E.F. Hutton speaks, then everybody would freeze, turn their ear. And they'd say, people, listen. I wonder if when God speaks, people are listening. And God's been speaking for thousands of years, certainly between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He was silent for 400 years. But when Jesus arrived on the scene, He spoke in a way He'd never spoken before. He spoke to us person to person. He became one of us to communicate with us. When Jesus speaks, God is speaking to us. We ought to listen. We have to say, God, help me hear what you're saying. I'm going to talk to you today about what he said about children. In Mark chapter 10, we read, he said in several different places, while he was recorded for us, he talked about children. I want to look at this passage here. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. This is a, this was an Old Testament tradition where God invited the patriarchs, the leaders of the family, or the the priest to lay their hands 
on young people as they were growing to give them a blessing from the Lord. In a sense, it would communicate that I'm passing on to you what I've come to know to be true before God, that you are of great worth and value in His eyes, that He wants to uh, bless your life, that He loves you deeply, that He wants you to walk in harmony with Him. I want to pass the blessing that I've received on to you so that you can walk in the fullness and the assurance of God's love. These were some wise people bringing their children to God to experience that touch and that affirmation of their value and their worth early on. It's good for a person to receive this deep in their hearts, as was prayed about, not just intellectually, but in our hearts and souls early on, because it gives you a great advantage in life. Our culture, our world has a way of confusing people about their value and worth. Giving them sort of surface level measuring sticks. Our culture measures people's value by many temporal ways. Women's value is often measured by their beauty or their physical shape or the clothing they wear and and how attractive they are. Men's value or people's value in general is measured by their economic status. Sometimes by the house they live in, the car they drive, the, the job they have. By their education level. People's value can be measured by their intellect, their smartness. Sometimes by their conquest in life. Athleticism. Talent in music. The problem with all of these things as a measure of worth and value is they all fade over time. My son is athletic. Seems that many people affirm that in him. But it will fade, just like his dad's did. (laughs) Hopefully his lasts a little longer than his dad's, but it will fade. His athleticism. And I pray that he doesn't have his value and worth wrapped up in his athleticism. Because he's far more of great worth and value than he is as a person created in the image of God than he is as an athlete. These adults wanted their children, I don't know if it was aunts, uncles, parents, grandparents, they were bringing their children to God so that God could place His hands on them and affirm in them their value and worth as His children made in His image. They were doing what was right. Author George Barna in his book Spiritual Health for Our Children observes that sociologists have found a strong correlation between economic status, socioeconomic status, and quality of life. It's not surprising since money is crucial to acquiring the basics that foster survival. However, he says, the observation is people's reactions to their economic status is closely tied to their faith. Many poor people experience greater levels of joy and fulfillment in life than do affluent individuals because their view of life is based on their depth of their relationship with God rather than on their personal achievements and comfort. Instead of defining success as the accumulation of possessions, experiencing the most exhilarating adventures, or all these worldly standards gaining public acclaim, many economically deprived people realize a greater degree of peace because they view life as nothing more than a prelude to a more glorious existence with God 
in heaven that starts now. Their physical and emotional suffering is deemed secondary to the security they have in Christ's love. When a person is grounded in the love of God early on, it's of great advantage to them. They don't succumb to all these lies that we're told about value and worth in our world. They have a steadier, more joyful, more meaningful, more purposeful life. These individuals were doing what was right. We can strive to give our youngsters all the advantages the world has to offer. And there's nothing wrong with that. We can motivate them to make the most of available opportunities and resources to seize the day in the world that they live in. But unless their spiritual life is prioritized and nurtured, they will miss out on much of the meaning and purpose and joy in life. These individuals were prioritizing and showing their children that a relationship with God through Jesus, a connection and affirmation from God early on in their life that they learned to walk in over the course of their life is of great importance. They were doing what was right. So it's interesting that verse 13 continues. The disciples, Jesus' closest followers, this is a strong word, the disciples rebuked them. Ever been rebuked? Husbands, you've been rebuked. I've been rebuked numerous times by my wife. Remember one time I was speaking about something, spiritually speaking, I was with a minister who was a little older than me and I was maybe speaking out of my league a little bit. And he said, now did you read that somewhere? Or do you know that from experience? I didn't want to answer. Because I had read it, heard it. And he said, don't speak so convictedly on something that you don't really know firsthand. It's a good rebuke. Sometimes my wife will look at me after I've been moaning about something for a while and And a rebuke has some energy to it, you know? There's some conviction in it, some emotion behind it. And she'll look at me in something like this. Tim, get over it! It's a little rebuke. The disciples, with some conviction, the word rebuke, some energy, told these people what they were doing was wrong. They had some other agenda in their mind. See, Jesus' mission was important, and all of a sudden, these people and these children were getting in the way, and so they rebuked them. This is an example of how easy it is to be convicted and to be passionate and to be wrong. Ever been that? Convicted and passionate and just plain wrong? Again, I have. Sometimes I don't like to admit I don't know where I'm going, the family's driving, and I don't like to have advice when I'm driving. And My wife will say, Tim, do you know where we're going? I'll say, yes, I do. Then we'll get a little confused on the way. And I guess maybe I didn't know quite as strongly as I thought I did. The disciples rebuked these people and said, Get away. And then God speaks. 
we know a little bit about how he spoke from the next verse. When Jesus saw this, he says, he was indignant. Indignant. Strong words, rebuked, indignant. I would have liked to have been there to watch this transaction occur. I wonder how many of the disciples were sort of crowding them back like secret service or something. Rebuking the people. I wonder how many of them were involved. I wonder what Jesus' face looked like when he became indignant. I did some work on this word. It's the only time the word's used in the New Testament. It's a word that comes from the root of two separate words, which are deep sadness and anger. Jesus was deeply saddened and he was angry. You know, when Lazarus died and Jesus stood before the tomb, it says he was greatly disturbed within his spirit. You have these descriptions of Jesus, very human in what he feels, emotional in what he feels. Here he's indignant, he's deeply grieved, and he's angered by what's going on. And I sat there when I was reading this passage and picked out this passage as I was just reading through what words Jesus said. I thought, I've never really looked into what happened in that scenario right there. Why was Jesus indignant? One could argue that he was indignant because he loves children. Children are easy to love. They're cute, aren't they? I mean, I love children. Anytime a child comes by my office at the church, I want to get right out there and see them in the hallway. Get down and see their little face, their little smile, hear the things they say. They bring joy to our lives. Maybe Jesus just wanted the little reprieve that children sometimes bring and enjoy their, their fellowship, their companionship. And He loves them. We know He loves them. But Jesus maybe has something more in mind. I wonder if He was indignant because He knows children have their whole lives to live in front of them. Dwight L. Moody is a great evangelist and he went off and out and did evangelistic uh, workshops and speaking engagements, rallies, and would invite people to come to faith in Jesus. And one night his wife was not feeling well. She stayed at home, went to bed early. He came home after one of these rallies. His wife rolled over and said, how did it go tonight, honey? He said, it went really well. So there were two and a half souls saved tonight. His mother smiled, his wife smiled and said, well, that's nice. How old was the little child? Dwight L. Moody says, stiffened up in bed and said, Honey, it was two children and one adult. You see, those children have their whole lives to live. But that adult only has half their life left. Maybe Jesus, when he sees the little children, says, Look, there's a, there's a life that's just beginning. I want to touch them early. So they know my, my affirmation and my love over their whole lives, not just half of it. And maybe Jesus knows, we know He knows, that their whole life that they're going to live on this earth is not a life that's lived out on a neutral playground, but it's a life that's lived out in the midst of a spiritual war where there are two entities warring for their souls. And Jesus wants to get a start early with their soul. 
to touch them early and let them know how deeply He cares for them and whose they are and who created them. So the evil one doesn't stand much of a chance. At the moment of birth, all of heaven stands in breathless anticipation and breaks into shouts of joy and praise. Each child is born into the world loved and full of potential to bring joy to the heart of God. A little flame flickers deep in the child's being. It reflects the dignity and worth of being made in the image of God. And God is trying to display His image around the world through His created people. We're image bearers. Meanwhile, Satan and his evil hosts stand ready to pounce and destroy that life as quickly, as completely as possible. They know how that will break the heart of God. All of heaven and hell are present and focused on the newborn life for vastly different reasons. Both have strategic designs for this little one. It's written by Wes Stafford, president of Compassion International, who has witnessed the war for the souls of children in our world for well over 40 years. Maybe Jesus, when he was standing there, is fully aware that these little children are there. They have their whole life to live, and that life is going to be lived out in the midst of a waging spiritual war for their souls. And Jesus is trying to usher into an, usher in an eternal kingdom through the hearts of men. And Jesus knows that that's best done when it's passed on from an older generation in the faith to the next generation. And then those children grow up in the faith and become anchored in God and His love. And they pass it on to the next generation and to the next generation and to the next generation. So the kingdom of God expands as these people expand and the generations expand. And the world then knows. Jesus was indignant. And he said, and I have tried to figure out what might have been his tone. What does an indignant Jesus sound like? Get back! Jesus dire goes up. And maybe in compassion, he says to his disciples. Let the little children come. Let the little children come. You know, there's a natural propensity for children to want to believe. I mean, the older we get, the more we experience of life, the harder it is to believe. But children, children, in their innocence and in their imagination, to believe is not that big a deal. A couple of years ago, I was at my brother's house and he's got a little boy named Dietrich Timothy. He was about two years age at the time and it was time for his nap. So I said, well, I'll take him down to the bedroom. He's hard to get down for a nap. He's very energetic. And I said, well, Deet, we call him Deet. Deet, let's take your dinosaurs downstairs. We'll play on the bed a little bit in dinosaur land. So we went down to the bedroom and he had his dinosaurs, all the little plastic ones and the T-Rex. And I don't even know he knew all the names of these little dinosaurs. And, and before long, that whole bedroom was Jurassic Park. There were dinosaurs flying around and they were coming after us. And finally, he got worn out and fell asleep. 
Its imagination is wild. My little niece can become a princess at the drop of a hat. All of a sudden, she's a princess in a fairy tale land, and, and she believes. Remember one day, my wife walked out to my son, who was sitting on one of our mini horses, and he said, Mom, you just can't believe it. He had a little blood nick on his arm or on the side of his cheek. I don't remember where it was. Mom was like, what happened? Oh, I just had the wildest ride of my life, he said. This horse, we ran down along that fence. I cut myself on the barbed wire. We were coming back around here. I'm just taking a breather. My wife said, what? He smiles at just kidding, Mom. The darn horse won't go anywhere. <laughs> Scraped himself on the raspberry bushes. For a child, it's not hard to be presented with the idea that they're loved by a God we can't see and that God became flesh and made His dwelling among us in the person of Jesus who died for their souls so they're of great infinite and worth and value to Him. Kids believe. They just believe. They want to come. Their spirits are open. 85% of the people who surrender their lives to Jesus do so before age 18. It gets harder after that. Jesus said, while they're young, let them come. And then, in indignancy, I wonder if He rebuked the disciples and said, do not hinder them. Don't hinder them. Don't get in their way. This is the most important thing in their lives. Let the children come. Do not hinder them. This is God. Let the children come to me. They have a natural inclination to come. Don't hinder them. Don't get in their way. Actually be of assistance to them. And then he used them as a teaching point. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Children are a gift for us to see the simplicity of faith and belief. And how anyone can come into the kingdom of God through the works of Jesus, and just trusting in what God has done. When he had placed his hands on them, Matthew 19 in a different place, says when he had placed his hands on them and gave them the blessing, he went on from there. We as a church want to make it as easy as possible for the children in our church family to come to Jesus. We have VBS that we host here and in Cedar Falls. We had over 400 children involved in VBS trying to present to them the gift of the love of God in Jesus. We have Great Adventure, 350 to 400 people in Great Adventure. The children come to our worship services. We have over 80 children between ages 0 and 2. We have mission trips. We have small groups. We have caravan. We offer scholarships to, to help children come to these events and hear about the love of God. But the fact remains that the most significant influencers in children's lives will not be the church. 
It will be their parents, their grandparents, their aunts, their uncles, and adults in their lives. Many in our church family are making it easy for children to come to faith and experience the blessing of God. But there's always more that can be done. I want to ask you to do something today in a time of prayer. It's nothing more important than helping our children come to faith in Jesus. We can give them every advantage the world has to offer. But if they don't know Jesus, it's all useless. In this closing time of prayer, I want to ask you to think about the children you know. Maybe you're a parent to young children, 18 and under. The children in the room right here. I want you to ask yourself, are you doing something to help them come to faith, come to Jesus? In the time of prayer, I want you to pray for them. If there's a child around you or a parent around you, I want you to put your hand on them. I want you to pray with me that God would would help us lead these individuals, point them to Jesus where He can touch them. Now, would you pray with me? Lord, I'm mindful in this passage that was recorded for us about Your words. It was very clear what you said. You said that we are to let the children come to you. In no ways hinder them. So they could experience the blessing and the affirmation of their value and their worth by your touch, deep in their souls. We want our children to experience this early on, Lord, to know they're deeply loved and deeply cared for by you. And our love is frail and it's fickle and sometimes we, we misrepresent you to our children. And for that, we're sorry. And today we ask that in spite of ourselves, you would touch our children. You would affirm their, their dignity and their value and their worth. And you would speak to them as they grow about your destiny for them. And that they would hunger and thirst to follow after you all of the days of their lives. And that we as their their leaders, the generation before them, would continually be empowered to point them again and again and again to you. The everlasting joy and anchor for our souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.